so we have, as part of our family, a, a girl named Natalie that became part of our family right around her middle school years. Uh, we first were introduced to Natalie when she would call our house late at night while she was in middle school to talk to our middle schooler, Dustin, because she had a crush on him. And so I would say to Natalie, Natalie, leave us alone. And Natalie never left us alone, and now she's part of our family, and we're really glad that she didn't leave us alone. So several years ago, uh, we're, we're, part, we're, we're sort of like mom and dad to her in some senses, so she, she was getting ready to move to Washington, D.C., and she needed to lease a vehicle, and so I went with her to lease the vehicle, and we found a dealership, and we found a, a vehicle that she liked, and we walked through that entire process. And so we're getting ready to sign the papers, and she said, well, really, I would like that same vehicle only in that color over there. And so they said, no problem. So they pulled out another vehicle and she signed the papers, made it, made it official and, and got into the vehicle and I followed her home. But it just didn't look right. And, and, and you need to understand that, that Natalie is about four foot, 13 inches. That's about what she is. You'll figure that out. She's, she's not very tall, and, and so it just didn't look right. And so we got to the, to the driveway, and, and I ran up to her car. I said, you can hardly see over the dashboard. What are you doing? She said, well, when I got in the car, I reached down to hit the power button to lift the seat up, which she has to do. And she said, there's not one in this vehicle. And she said, it's just it's preset for, for this size. And she said, it's, it's really difficult. And she said, but I signed the papers. I've got the vehicle now. So she said, I, I guess what I'll do is I'll, just, I'll get a pillow or I'll get some books. I said, are you crazy? So we contacted the dealership and said, the car that we drove is not the car that you gave us. It's kind of a like, but she needs a seat to, to get up in, in, in height so she can see over the dashboard. And, and so we went back and they were just so gracious and they ended up giving her a much better car than she even had driven out originally at the same price. It was wonderful and it was so great to see her then get in the vehicle and, and she just, you know, she's like this and suddenly she just comes up like this and she's in place. And so she basically reset the preset for herself, and now she can see where she's going, which is a good thing. So I have a question for you this morning. What is it that you think you're stuck with? What's been preset in your life? And we're defining preset this morning this way, to set or adjust in advance of its use. You say, here are some things in my life that seem to have just come this way, and I have to live with them that way. I've, I've got these things in my life that are there, and so we end up making choices every day based upon what we have already had preset in us by tradition, by circumstance, by our home life, by our challenges. These things are preset, and this is the way it always will be. We're stuck with this personality, or this destiny, or this handicap, or these limitations, or this failure. I'm stuck with that. So, so we have to ask the question, what is it you want to do with your relationship with Jesus? And the real question is this, what do you think Jesus wants to do with the relationship he has with you? And I want to tell you what he wants to do with us, is he wants to, to reset the presets that are in our lives. So for the next seven weeks... We are going to look at seven parts of life 
that seem to be preset in our lives that need to be reset. And those seven resets will give us a much better view of how we should live life. The guide that we will use to walk us through this is a letter that was written by a first century apostle named Paul to a place called Philippi. And we begin first by Paul asking us a question by what he states is ours. The question is, how do you view your day? How do you view these next 24 hours? Because how you view them now will create your action for this day. So my wife Pam had been gone and she wasn't here last Sunday because she had, she had gone for about a week away and gone to Kansas City to hold our new youngest grandchild who's about three months old. The grandbaby's the one on the bottom, so just. <laughs> she had a great time. She loved little Everett and, and so in the morning she would get up early and when, the, when Everett would cry and go down and hold Everett so that Chad could get on to work and, and then Chad's wife, Erin, could actually go back to bed and, and get some rest. And if you've had a newborn, you know what that's like. And so Pam would do that and care for them and clean. And then she would, she would make meals. And she was, just, she was there all week just to serve them. And so by the end of seven days, Grandma was tired. And in addition to that, at night, she would then go up the stairs into the attic that was hot in the day and cool at night and sleep on an air mattress. So she was ready to come home. And I was ready for her to come home. So she was on her way to the Kansas City airport, and I got notified by United Airlines that her, connect, her flight coming in was going to be about 10 minutes late. And she has a connection flight in, in Chicago, and she has only 60 minutes to, to get from where she is. And it's usually right, it's way on the other side of the airport where she has to go. And you have to board 30 minutes before, so that gives her 20 minutes. I thought, well, that's still safe. And then as she's getting closer to the airport, I get notified that now it's 40-minute delay. I was thinking, no, there's just no way she's going to make this. So I call United. And I said, I, I, my wife's coming, and she's on her way to the airport, and here's what you've said, and I don't think she's going to make her connection. And, and the lady was so helpful, she said, I don't think she's going to make it either. <laughs> I said, well, good, I'm glad we can agree on this. This is nice. What are you going to do about it? Well, there's really nothing else going out this evening, and, and, and really there's not, nothing else we can do so I can get her out tomorrow at 1020 in the morning. I said, but let me ask you a question. Is, is this a, a mechanical delay or a weather delay? Because if you know if you fly, if it's a weather delay, they won't do anything for you. If it's a mechanical delay, they might do something. She said, all I know is that that flight was late because the flight before that was late and the flight before that was late. And I thought, lady, just kidding. And she said, so I have no idea. So I thought, well, okay. There's no, and my preset says, once the airline digs in, there's really not much you can do. So I called Pam and I said, here's what I'll do. I've already booked you for the 1020 flight tomorrow. I'll make you a, a hotel reservation. Don't even go to the airport and mess with those people. Just go to the hotel and get some rest. And, and Pam's preset is, no, I'm going to the airport. I'm going to see what I can do. Yeah. So I said, well, go ahead. And call me when you figure out what you're going to do. So a little bit later, she calls. And I said, where are you? She says, I'm at the Sheraton Hotel. I said, the Sheraton? I said, who paid for that? She said, the airline. Serious. She said, and when I got here, I asked for an upgrade. They gave that to me. I said, are you serious? 
And she said, yes, and I also get dinner tonight free and tomorrow morning I get breakfast free. I said, serious? And then I said, well, are you okay for the flight tomorrow? She said, oh yes, and by the way, they're flying me first class. And I don't have to pay for my baggage. So, well, excuse me. So then she calls my daughter-in-law and says, I'm in Kansas City and I'm here because of this. And my daughter-in-law says, I feel so bad. We'll come and get you and you can come and stay with us tonight. Now, put yourself in Pam's place. A full house, crying baby, attic, an air mattress, big bed, Sheraton Hotel. Which would you choose? Sheraton Hotel. We were delighted, I was delighted, that she had gone with her preset and not mine. It always doesn't turn out that way, but I can tell you that because of the way that her mind was preset, no matter what circumstance she would have gotten into at that moment, Pam has this way of thinking, it's going to be good. It's going to work out. Several years ago, Pam got stopped by the, the state police right down here at Peach and Oliver Road. Now, it happened to be on her birthday, she got stopped. Now, this is how her mind thinks. She said, Jack knows people, and he's having him stop, having this cop stop to wish me a happy birthday. <laughs> I'm serious. He walks up, and she rolls down her window and says, are you here to wish me a happy birthday? He says, no, I'm here to tell you your registration has expired. She said, well, that's my husband's fault. You need to talk to him. <laughs> so people look at Pam, and, and they say to her, you're always happy. I've been married to her for almost 39 years, and I can tell you that she's not always happy. <laughs> but I'll tell you what she's got, and, and, and this is what I want us to begin with today, is that happiness is based on happenings. Joy is based on positioning. Paul is not judging his day according to what happened. Paul, this apostle, has this intense drive. It is, he's an, a type A, he's a, he's a D personality, he is passionate, he is driven, he's going to do this thing, and the thing he's going to do is go around the known world and tell them about a new king, one who has been crucified and has risen again, this Jesus of Nazareth. And the way that he funds himself is that he makes and sells tents. And he loves to be with a crowd of people. He just soaks it in. And when he writes this letter we're about to read, he is sitting in prison in either Ephesus or Rome. He is isolated. He is alone. He cannot support himself. He has no friends. And you need to understand, understand something about a Roman prison. They do not feed you, they do not clothe you, and they give you no blankets to keep you warm. You have to have people bring that to you or you have nothing. And this is the situation that Paul finds himself in. And above all that, the odds are that before he gets out of there, they will execute him. And with that happening around him, here's how he begins his letter. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. For every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my request for all of you with what? With joy. 
That word joy means to be calmly cheerful, calmly cheerful, and, and delighted. Now catch this. He is in prison. Everything's been stripped away, and he is calmly joyful and delighted. So when things fall apart for you, how do you see life? What's your preset? I know people who are happy according to what is happening. And as long as the happenings are making them feel good, they have happiness. So if I'm going to go do this thing, it's going to make me happy, and then I'm going to happen to do this thing, and this happening, and I'm going to get a hold of, and I'm going to go to this happening, and this happening, and this happening, and always moving for one more happening. And what's happening in our culture is that we're looking for, looking for happenings to make us happy, and we keep increasing them and intensifying them and adding them to our schedules. And we find ourselves with nonstop happenings that are supposed to make us feel good. And what motivates us is this disease, this phobia, phobia called FOMO, F-O-M-O, fear of missing out. If I don't do that, if I, if I don't take hold of this opportunity, I will miss a part of happiness in my life and I will never get that back. I will lose that. Exactly. So we pack our schedules full and we exhaust our resources. And if anyone should have FOMO, the fear of missing out, it's Paul because he is Jesus' apostle to the world. And here he is stuck, doing nothing and having nothing. And you know he's got to be thinking, what am I missing? What's happening out there? What am I missing? Yet he does not have that fear because he knows he's not missing anything, because it is not what is happening, it is what he's been doing in positioning himself. And where he positions himself is not in location. After Pam and I first moved here 20 years ago from Oregon, and in Oregon, it's just absolutely gorgeous, and out my back window of my office where I was before, I could see beautiful Mount Hood, this huge mountain. It was just absolutely gorgeous. And so friends would go from here and visit Oregon, come back, and say to, to us, why did you move? Why did you ever leave that place? Oh, because I love winters. No. You know, when... when God decided that he, and he heard the cries of, of the nation of Israel who were in captivity in Egypt. He freed them up, and then he said, here's what we're going to do. You're going to follow me. And, and so as over a million people headed out into the desert, the wilderness, there was this huge cloud. They called it a pillar of cloud that covered those million people. And in the desert, it shaded them and was their personal GPS. Just follow, the, follow me. I'll get you there. At night, it was warmth because it was fire, and it was their nightlight as they traveled. And wherever it would go, they would go. When, when that pillar would stop, they would stop. Because what that was was the very presence of God, and what they began to understand was here is the presence of God, and everything we need is right here with this covering. So wherever that covering goes, I will go. I will follow you. At one point, the children of Israel made God so angry, he said to Moses, I will go ahead and let you go there, and I will send an angel ahead of you, but I'm not going with you to the place that I've designed for you. And Moses said, I'm not going unless you go. And he understood that unless I stay within your presence, no location will satisfy me, and I will not be the person I need to be. So I need to be at home wherever your presence has taken me. 
So the reason that I'm in Erie, Pennsylvania is because God's presence says, come follow me, I'm taking you to Erie, PA, and right there is where your home will be, and I will cover you there. And there you will find your joy. This is the place I have you covered. So whether, whether Paul is in a prison cell, or if Paul is on the streets, or on, on a boat in the middle of the Mediterranean, it doesn't matter to him as long as the presence of God has him covered. Paul doesn't position himself in location, and he doesn't position himself in activity. My personal vocation has an incredible rate of burnout. And people, why would you do that? Why would you be in a situation where it's stressful and, and, and people can criticize you and tear you apart? And, 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 and why would you do that? Because I'm not working for Jesus, I'm working with Jesus. And there's a difference. The four Jesus, I can look around at all the things that need to be done and say, I got to do that, and I got to go do that, and I got to go do that, and I got to go do this, and, and I got to run over here. And see, we all, I just happen to be working in this setting, but you're working in another setting, and if you're a follower of Jesus, you should be working with him, wherever that is. But working for Jesus makes us want to do all sorts of things. Working with Jesus means that Jesus says to us, as we're in his presence, he says, you know, today, you're going to do this. And there's a whole lot of other things that I could have you do, but today I'm just doing this and you're doing this with me. And that's all I need for you to do today is this thing. So that, that Paul knows that even though he would like to be out on the streets telling people about Jesus, Paul is in this prison with one guard perhaps, and Jesus is saying, today we're working here. And maybe for the next few months, we're working here. And Paul says, that's okay. I can do that because that's where the position in you has taken me. Why should we position ourselves in him? This Moses, who had positioned himself with God, said, I need more of you, and I want to position myself deeper in you, because he was understanding what this meant. He said, can I see more of you? And he used the word glory. Can I see more of what makes you who you are? And, and Jehovah God says to him, well, the problem is that you can't see me full on because your body's not built for that. You'll get a new body later, but that body you got right now can't handle this, and you're just going to explode if you see me. So what I'll do is I'll take you out here, and I will actually cover you in a rock with my hand, and I'll put you there, and then I'll walk behind you, and you'll see the backside of me. Now, the word backside of me actually doesn't mean they actually saw God. What they saw was the residue of what he left behind as he moved on. And it was so amazing just to see what was left after he had gone that when Moses came down off that mountain, it so changed him physically that he was his own nightlight. He just shined. It was amazing. When you are in God's presence, when you are truly in his presence, you pick up God's stuff on you. Peter, who had spent time with Jesus and had a lot of faults, and then on the day of Pentecost was filled with the Holy Spirit, spending time with Jesus, picks up these parts of Jesus that there are times that he walks through a city street and just his shadow will touch sick people and they're healed. 
What is that? That is the Jesus stuff left on him. That's what sets us apart from everything else. This, these, these pieces of Jesus that we get when we position ourselves in him. Shane Claiborne, or Claiborne writes in his blog, the more I read the Bible and study the life of Jesus, the more I become convinced that Christianity spreads best not through force but through fascination. But over the past few decades, our Christianity, at least here in the United States, has become less and less fascination. We have given the atheist less and less to disbelieve. And the sort of Christianity many of us have seen on TV and heard on the radio looks less and less like Jesus. You want fascination? Then here's what we do. We position ourselves in God so that Paul says this, that you will get the residue of Jesus on you, which is grace and peace. That's what we find in his presence, and that's how we should be preset for everything we face in the next 24 hours, grace and peace. Let me describe grace to you. Grace is God's favor for the day. His pleasure wrapped around ability without regard to merit. It's simply that God is pleased to put on us the ability to face our day. Sometimes it's at the Sheraton with first class tickets. Sometimes it's 1995 after Pam and I have spent three weeks in Africa telling people about Jesus and we're exhausted. We're heading toward the airport and I pray, and Pam hears me pray, oh God, we are so tired and we have served you. Would you get us bumped up to business class? We're just really tired. And I was really serious. We got to the, to the, uh, the, the desk and, they, and I said, where are our seats? And they said, well, actually something's happened and, and, and we don't even have your seats listed. And I thought, oh, here goes God, this is great. So, so they said, we've given you these seats. Well, let me tell you where those seats were. This is in 1995. We're on a jumbo jet. We are in the very back row. There are three seats on a side, three seats on a side, and five or six seats in the middle, and we are in the middle, in the back, where the seats do not recline for this 14-hour flight. They don't recline. They are next to the bathrooms where everybody stands. In those days, you didn't have your private movie screen in front of you. It was on the wall in the front. You needed binoculars to see the movie. And in addition to that, that was when they still had smoking. I sat down with Pam and started laughing. I said, I can't believe God did this to us. It must be sin in your life. <laughs> so I said, God, why am I here? I'm in smoking. And God said, I, I clearly heard him inside me, said, then you make it holy smoking. And what he was telling me was this, that there was grace in my life at that moment, that I could thrive in this circumstance. I would rather thrive in business class, but he wants me to thrive right there. Because in both situations, whether it's sleeping at the Sheraton, or being in the last row in smoking. 
God is fully present in each situation. And because he's fully present, not only does he give you the ability to thrive there, he also gives you peace. And peace is an inner assurance that God is fully making me confident and content. I am confident that he is giving me something good right there in smoking, in the blast row. There's something that God is giving me that is good because he is the king of good. He's giving me something good and he's giving me contentment that it is the best thing for me at that moment and I have not lost or missed anything. So for us to get to that place, we have to preset our minds for this, this grace and for this peace. We, we have to wrap our minds around what that means. So lately, Pam and I start our day this way. We started it this morning, this way. We take these pieces out of Psalm 91. I even began our, our first day prayer, and if you'd like to be prayed for or join us for prayer, we do this at 9.30 on Sunday mornings right here, which means you'll have to leave a little early for Tim Hortons, but you can still get here. And so here's how we start our morning. We pray together every morning, and it starts this way. Today, Jesus, we declare that you are Lord over every power, everything in this world and this universe, and anything beyond the universe we don't even know is there, you rule it all. Therefore, we submit to you. And so we declare that you are our fortress and we're climbing inside of you. And I'm just picturing that in my mind where, the, where those forces that would try to destroy us or ruin what's in our life can't get there. We are in the fortress. We are standing on you as a rock which puts us head and shoulders above our enemies. We have the high ground. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge, my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. For you will save me from the fowler's snare, which means any deadly trap, and the pestilence, which means any poisonous circumstance. And you, O oh Father, will keep us in the middle of your favor. And that has become our daily preset. Now, for that to really, really be activated, we have to change the way that we think. Because it takes more than an agreement of something that is said on a Sunday morning or some podcast I listen to on Thursday night. It takes training our thought life. Paul said this. He said, be transformed by the renewing of your, your mind. Athena Stake, who has a PhD, she's a counselor, she says this, your standards are set by your habitual thoughts. Whatever you keep thinking about is what your standards, your boundaries in life. Your thoughts reflect your beliefs. And you're always in the process of becoming what you are most thinking. Whatever you're thinking about is what you're becoming because your thoughts shape your actions. So in 1996, softball made it to the Olympics for the first time, and the United States women won a gold medal. How did they prepare themselves? Well, if you've ever seen a, thro a softball thrown from 43 feet at 65 miles per hour, you have about four-tenths of a second to react. 
to see what the spin on the ball is because a softball can do even more than a baseball can. It can rise, it can dip, it, it can curve, it can come straight, and it just, you just gotta, it just it comes, and you just can't believe how fast it's coming. It's, it's, equal, to, it's equal to a, a major league player standing at the plate, six, 60 feet, six inches away, the guy's pitching at 100 miles per hour. That's what it looks like. So how they prepared was this. They used an air cannon, and they would fling red or black tennis balls painted with a number on the tennis ball. And did I mention the size of the number was one half inch? And they would have to see and focus so that they could tell what that number is because they knew if they could do that, they could begin to pick up the spin of the ball and understand what that ball was doing. And they actually gauged the speed. They would speed read that orb. That machine was capable of pitching at 150 miles per hour. And they said, you know, if you can see the number on a ball thrown at 90 miles per hour, then in a game, 65 miles per hour looks pretty lazy because we got that focused. Then they would add noise as a distraction and other things around them to distract them so that they would learn to just take one look at that thing coming their way and pick out that number and get rid of all of the distractions. And they would come up to that plate with that mindset. That was their preset. So I have a question for you again. How are you conditioning yourself to look at your day? If you're just saying, well, whatever comes, comes, then you're in trouble. Because today there are millions of thoughts, there are millions of messages, challenges, and choices zipping by right at you. And you're trying to figure out which one to do, and they're wearing us down, and they're exhausting our resources, and they're stressing us out. Look at Jesus. He never seemed to have a confusing schedule. And he never had fear of missing out. Somehow he was able to zero in on what was supposed to be for the day, and that's the thing he focused on, and that's what he took care of. One day he said, all I need to do today is go to the Samaritan village because I must go there because God was going to change a woman's life, and that's all God had on the schedule for that day. In the same way, Jesus intends for us to zero in and power through. Folks, we are too busy. We are doing too many things that are not on God's list. And I want to tell you that if we will learn to see what's on God's list for us today, it will begin to bring to us rest, relaxation, and, and a contentment and a fulfillment that this is all I need to do today because I'm not missing out on anything. So we've got to reset our present presets of packed schedules and, and our drive to accept every invitation and every opportunity. That's why Paul prays this. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. Paul's saying, you know what? For the next 24 hours, here's what you need to do. You need to look, you need to look for the number one. What's the one thing you need to do? One thing. Love God and your neighbor as yourself. Find that today, because that's all God expects us to do. And that love is more than emotion and affection. That love includes knowledge and insight. Because here's what I know. I know that as I study God's already revealed words, we call those the Holy Scriptures, as I study those and I ask him about those things in my world, that when I start to walk through my day, I begin to see the number on the ball. 
and all other distractions fade. We see how the world is spinning and what it is we should focus on today, and we don't have to worry about missing anything else because God is revealing to us today, this is for your life. And life begins to slow down when we start our day with this preset of grace and peace. And when our vision is trained for the day, there are not 50 shades of gray. There's a clear view. Paul lived in a society where several moral issues were distorted and blurred, making it difficult to know what the right thing is to do. He says, I pray that you'll find what I have, what I have found, that, that life will become clear for you. And it'll become clear for you when you preset your life with grace and peace. And you'll find a new clarity. You know exactly what to do. Sometimes we sweat so much about what's God's will, what's God's will, what, what does God want, what does God want. I'm going to tell you that if you spend time with him and you, and you take in this grace and this peace, you will begin to be able to recognize immediately what that is. In fact, it'll become part of who you are. In fact, it'll come sometimes you go, well, could this be right? Could it be that easy? Yes, it could be. And sometimes you get so connected with God that, that he says to you, go do whatever you want because our hearts are so intertwined right now. Go do, whatever, do what you want and I'll make it work. Because what you're looking for is the number one thing, which is love God and love people around you. Then we'll know what we should do in every time and every place. Even if you're Paul the Apostle and you're sitting in a prison. So we have this friend of this church who came connected to us and began to grow in developing this preset. This preset of, of, of grace and peace and, and, and understanding God. And, and so he began to be mentored by some folks around here and began to grow in that. Now, before he came to us, he had been arrested several times for DUIs. And so while he was here, he went before the judge and the judge sentenced him to some prison time. And so he's in prison right now. And our concern was, how's God going to take care of him? We're not sure how mature he is. We're not sure how, how preset in his mind he is to handle this thing in prison. And so this last week, we received a letter, and I'm going to read parts of these letters. And just so that I have a name for him, I'm going to call him Dude. So here's some of the things Dude says. Now, I, I got to stop and just tell you that when Dude came to us, he was a mess. And, and Dude really did his best to begin to understand this stuff about Jesus and about not finding his happiness in happenings, but finding his joy in the positioning of himself with God. And we're not sure how well it took. So now this is dude in the prison. Anyway, judging by my positively optimistic, joyfully joyous attitude toward any and all situations, I've been able to lead four inmates to Christ. Three of the inmates read their Bible and daily devotionals every day. They also attend church every Sunday in which the Lord has led me to encourage them to do so. After we had talked about his situation, he's talking about a guy named Braden, his situation for a while, I had them express to Braden, I, I had then expressed to Braden not to worry. I said to him, do not be afraid. Braden had never been in prison and he just had come in and dude connected with him and saying, hey, don't be afraid. 
Then I proceeded in opening up my student Bible, turning to the concordance, I showed Braden that there are 365 scriptures about fear, one for each day of the year. At this point, he was open and asked me to explain to him who Christ was. And led by the Holy Spirit, I began telling him passionately, full of confidence, there you are, full of confidence and expression that Jesus was the Son of God who came in flesh to redeem us and die for our sins so that we could receive forgiveness and eternal life through his death and resurrection. At the end of it all, Braden said the sinner's prayer and accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. Since then, Braden and I, pause, have been spending time in prayer together. We have daily devotions together, and since my dad has sent me the Essential Jesus, the book that we all studied together, we have been using it as a daily Bible study. He spends almost as much time as I do in the Scriptures. On Friday, April 3rd, 2015, which was Good Friday, I did my first baptism by baptizing Braden. I took a bowl of water and had Braden kneel down in front of our toilet. I said to him, Braden, do you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? He replied, yes. Then I leaned him back and said, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then I slowly dumped the water over his face and head. It is an experience that I'll never forget. I am truly honored that the Lord worked through me to bring Braden to Christ and to baptize him. Amazing. So... So he ends with this, I seek the Lord with all my heart and ask him in prayer to guide my heart and to fill me with practical wisdom and spiritual wisdom to help me in my development for my missionary work. He has this calling to share Jesus. And I know for a fact that this is the point of my exile. He's referring to the fact that he feels like he's been exiled away from everything else as Paul had been exiled in his prison. He said, I am here because it is good. I have a purpose. The fact that ever since the Lord has revealed his purpose for me, I have been filled with the overwhelming joy. And this is why I know it's of God. See, joy is not happiness. Happiness is when the happenings are happening like you want them to happen. Joy is a positioning that no matter what you face, there is a confidence, there is a contentment, there is, there is an ability. There is, there is this settling in that I'm okay right here because it is good and God's going to give me the best at this very moment I find myself. So we want us to move together into that positioning. And, and to do that, it's going to take more than you just saying this morning, hey, that was a great story and that was fun and that's really good. We've got, we've got to train our, our thinking now. The way, we, the way that our thoughts come through. I, I, was, I was at a, a gym and I had a guy that was going to train me on, on working out. And, and so he said, okay, first, first thing you're going to use this kettlebell and you're going to do this thing with the kettlebell. And I said, okay, show me. So he showed me and he said, okay, that's what you're going to do. I thought, okay, great. I got that. I can see what you do. He says, okay, now do it. What? Oh, oh yeah, you got to do it now. Pfft, I can do that. So I take this kettlebell and I swing the kettle and I do these squats and I get up and back and forth. He said, see if you can do like 20. After about three, he said, are you lightheaded? Uh-huh. <laughs> I am. So the, the issue is this. You can agree intellectually from what I've told you today, but unless, unless you start doing it, it's just not going to do you any good. 
And you've got a whole lot of things coming your way today that you have to choose to do. But there'll be nothing more important than you positioning yourself with God. Because he's going to train you to look at the day and you're going to know today. By the time, when you spend time with him, you're going to wake up every day and through that day, you're going to say, that's what I'm supposed to do today. That's the thing. That's right there is what I'm supposed to do. So to help you with that, we want to encourage you to go to facebook.com eerie first. And we're going to be putting on, as we go through this series, we're going to be putting on some thoughts from the messages that we're giving you and encouraging you to just remember those things and go back and listen to the podcast. And then we want you to join in and Twitter, whatever you're going to do, but just join in with us and, and say, here's what I'm doing. And, oh, I'm going to encourage you because I'm trying this. And let us, us as a community, as a community, can we start walking this together, how we're positioning ourselves, so that we look for the next 24 hours every day preset that it's going to be great, it's going to be good. It's time to reset our presets. And especially with grace and peace. Because if we do that, we end up with the ability, the confidence, the clarity, and the power to make it a great day. So here's my blessing on you today. Have a great day. Now it's up to you. God bless you. Have a great day.